Welcome to the first edition of eStories, an occasional documentary podcast series that seeks to tell the story of significant events in Formula E and motorsport history from several viewpoints. I'm Stuart Garlick, the host of eTalking and the writer for Motion E, which you can find on motione.org. In this episode, we look at the earliest days of Formula E and the race that would decide if Formula E was just another upstart challenger in a crowded market of racing championships or a genuine phenomenon. I'm talking about the Beijing E-Prix, the first race of season one, which took place on the 13th of September 2014 on a sunny day in the Chinese capital. You have to treat race one like a pilot in a TV show. When you go back, it's always odd to watch it and things are slightly different to what you're used to now. That voice you just heard was Naomi Panther. Naomi is a PR in motorsport, working with a number of teams, and has just launched Navigate Partners with Christopher Foster. She will be giving her recollections of Beijing, as will Shiv Gohill. I was uh, just coming into the motorsport photography scene. I had had a few breaks into Formula One testing through some smaller uh, websites and blogs at the time. So it was... I was, I was very lucky. I started right at the pinnacle of motorsport. I didn't really go, um, I didn't, I wasn't accredited to any other uh, motorsport events. I just happened to get quite lucky. Shiv began as a wedding photographer, but decided to get involved in motorsport and has been covering Formula E right since the start. He currently works with Current E, which is a photographic agency which follows Formula E wherever it goes. Those pictures, I because it was the testing, it was before, I think it was 2014 RF, so it was uh, before the first race and took those shots and I threw them all over uh, Twitter, Instagram, whatever social media I had at the time. And um, I got uh, picked up. I got found by uh, Ross Ringham, who was developing the first or creating the first uh, Formula E private website which um, was called Current E and uh, yeah we just started having a discussion and uh, things rolled just rolled forward from there. From the early moments when Formula E was announced as a series and when they rolled out the prototype with employee number one Lucas Degrassi driving there was widespread scepticism over the potential for the championship. How could there be electric street racing when it wasn't possible for a car to last more than half of the race? There were also other obstacles to overcome, and a feeling among some that, whatever happened, Formula One would always have the upper hand. Formula E, then, had a certain point to prove to many people within the motorsport and wider public. I think it is fair to say that the general interest in the motorsport community was quite low at Formula E. And I don't think it's I don't think it's unfair to say that um, in many ways it was scoffed at in those early days. And you could really feel that. But I think it's a tremendous it, it really is a testament to the, the team at Formula E, how they created a story around around the championship and how they how they really built that narrative. Um, and I remember even in preseason testing, you know, there was there were so many efforts to try and just create some kind of <laughs> content or rivalry. So obviously that you would naturally do things like have the Prost Senna photo shoots, things like that, you know, creating, you know, re- uh, trying to revive old rivalries in the next generation, that kind of thing, because nobody was really sure what this, what the story was. 
obviously the championship had this very strong sustainability uh, story to tell and the EV technology was evolving but manufacturers hadn't perhaps quite got behind it as much as you as they have now obviously um, and so you had a lot of teams that were more t maybe tech focused there weren't many you know not many manufacturers committing to the championship yet and so it was really this uh, no one quite knew what it was and for me that was amazing and I, I sort of in in some I'm incredibly proud about where Formula E is now and very emotional when I think about it but I loved those days where it was this sort of anarchic just crazy championship where no one really quite knew where to place it and it was electric cars running on a traditional circuit at Donington and we didn't really know how representative that was of anything and we didn't know what the races were going to look like yet um you know the, the driver change the drivers were changing around all the time the teams were being signed up at different pay different rates uh, some teams were far you know much further along than others were it was just brilliant you know I, I loved everything about it and for me it was my first real motorsport experience on on that side of the fence and I it, it blew my mind when Formula E actually started I really like the fact that it was um, in the off season and that was a bit of a selling point for me because of my current work in the wedding industry I, I couldn't have uh, a clash in work in the summer so the championship was great and I thought this is a great opportunity to get into motorsport which I've loved pretty much all my life since I was a kid um, when I heard about Formula E I actually read up on it in a magazine or there was an article online, I can't remember exactly what it was, but just hearing about the people that were involved in the project and how it came about and the, just the infrastructure of racing in cities, having uh, city centers as the selling point and just coming out of your hotel and being at a racetrack, not miles away, it just sounded great. And um, I, never really had any doubts uh, such as other racing series which i've seen rise and fall i never really had any doubts that the the championship would stay i, I knew it was here to stay once i once i heard about the idea let alone um, the first race as always in racing the true stars of formula e were the drivers they were picked from a wide variety of backgrounds and had come into the sport at various stages of their careers there were the old guard who had been there, seen it, raced in Formula One, and were maybe either looking for a new challenge or a last paycheck. There were also the drivers who wanted to make it to Formula One, but didn't quite make it there. One of those drivers was Sam Bird. Having done well in the Junior Series, Sam was selected as reserve driver for the Mercedes Grand Prix team and got to see Nico Rosberg and Michael Schumacher and how they coped with the pressure of being Formula One drivers up close. And yet, as he was to recount many years later, there was never a true chance of him being picked. As his finances dwindled, Sam started looking at other options. He was about to take his personal training certificate when he was picked by the Virgin Formula E team. He was picked alongside Jaime Algasuari, who of course had made it to Formula One race driver status with the Toro Rosso team. But as with so many drivers through the Red Bull program, he was dropped and was also looking for a new challenge. It's fair to say that a lot of the drivers who I, I sort of always divided the, the drivers in the early seasons into two categories. It was either drivers who come were on their way up and hit their head off the sort of glass ceiling of Formula One and bounce into Formula E, or you had drivers on their way back down 
um, if that's not too unfair to say. And I think Sam was one of those drivers who was, you know, obviously incredible in his final season in GP2, narrowly lost out to Fabio Leimer and, um, you know, had still had so much to prove. Um, and so I think when he came into Formula E, I don't think he came in with any sense of I certainly didn't get a sense from him of any bitterness or any sort of this is my my last chance. He always just approached it as such a pro. Um, maybe some of that coming from his you know his time with Mercedes, but he you know he he was always extremely confident and a really really nice guy. I, th I think Jaime had you know it had undeniable skill, and I think I, I never saw anything other than he, he and Sam taking things very seriously. I think it, I think certainly the feeling around Virgin for, as an outsider was that they were real. They were both planning to be very competitive, but that they would be a team to beat. Um, obviously, it didn't work out particularly well for him results-wise. But I only have I only ever have fond memories for for him. Two World Series by Nissan titles made Franck Montagny one of the most promising young drivers in his early career. He then joined the Renault Formula 1 team as test driver and latterly third driver, getting to see Fernando Alonso and Giancarlo Fisichella at close quarters. Franck was later picked for the Super Aguri Formula 1 team, where he stepped in in 2006 after Yuji Ide lost his super license. Montagni instantly improved the performances the team had been putting in and seemed to create a more settled atmosphere there. He was well known for his easygoing demeanour and his pink helmet, and he brought real character to Formula E, not to mention a racing pedigree that stretched across Formula One, sports cars and champ cars, and gave the new electric street racing formula and also the Andretti Autosport team for whom he drove, a driver with genuine ability and also with the chance to win races potentially. I think Frank was one of the most fascinating drivers to watch from the very beginning of pre-season testing through to the, the races that he took part in. He was such a super cool guy <laughs> i mean like he was laid back <laughs> nothing bothered him um and he i don't know he had the air of one of these drivers who had kind of been through it all done it all and this was like a very nice way to spend some time and it really did feel like that and he would just chill out on the pit wall um and uh with his sort of vibrant he had pink alpine star shoes i seem to remember that matched his super bright helmet and he was just one of those drivers who was fascinating because he was so calm that he would just gone it and go for it and i think that's why he did so well in the first race he was incredibly strong um ultimately having a fantastic result and he's one of those drivers that i would love to have seen race on for a lot longer because i think he could have been a surprise contender in the championship i think everybody after the first race was really getting their act together and the teams that you would expect to do well started to do well but i do think he would have been those continuous uh one of those continuous surprises through the championship one of the teams entering Formula E in the first season with perhaps the highest hopes was Apt Schaeffler, a team created from Apt Sportsline, which had achieved great success tuning and running Audis in the DTM Touring Car Series previously. They came in with their distinctive red, yellow and green cars, and also with a driver lineup of Brazilian Lucas de Grassi, who I mentioned earlier, who drove the prototype and had first-hand experience of Formula E right from the start, and also Daniel Abt, son of Hans-Jürgen Abt, and a very promising driver himself in the junior formulae, having had good results in both GP3 and GP2 previously. 
Apt was one of those teams that were very professional from the very beginning, and it was clear that they had big intentions. They had a great driver lineup, and obviously Lucas having or you know already been so involved in the development of the Formula E car had some great experience that he could bring to the team. Paired with Daniel, it's always been a fantastic team to watch because Daniel has uh, that sort of you know Daniel is youthful and energetic and is was definitely far less experienced than Lucas at the beginning of the of the championship. And I think he was another driver who perhaps was wrongfully you know uh given a hard time for having his, you know his dad's name if you like and you know thinking that he didn't quite deserve the, the seat perhaps but he's proven definitively how good he is daniel apt isn't your typical racing driver as he told me in october 2019 he has a whole lot of other interests including youtube when he came into formula e he was already a very popular youtuber and of course that popularity has gone up with his exposure He's always been a very quick driver, but as Naomi said, he's had to dispel the idea that he's there because of his father being the boss of the team. And perhaps coming from the background he does has helped him to foster a wide range of interests. I wouldn't say that I'm 24-7 into cars. I also like to have some time thinking about other stuff or being with friends and being out of this whole scene because I think if you're only in it, you get crazy. Um, but I do like to do to also, you know, do some other stuff than just racing or just, you know, some some race drivers they they go home, they go cycling seven days a week, and then they come to the next race. This for me is not the type of life that I feel excited about. And um, yeah, I just feel like it's cool to do other stuff and to uh, build cars and, and, and yeah, have cool projects. The whole YouTube stuff is, has really become my my second. Job. I'm in the company uh, every every day that I that I can, you know, and, and, and my father's company, trying to trying to help, trying to work on stuff, and uh, yeah, then there's not much time left for for other stuff, to be honest. And as Shiv Gohill tells us, things were very different in the paddock if you wanted to talk to a driver or take their picture back then. They were a lot more approachable back then, and I don't mean that in a negative way to them now. Because Formula E was brand new, everyone was scratching each other's backs. We were all, well, they were all drivers who had come from different formulas. Some had not made it in Formula One and a few other championships, and they wanted to make this work. And that meant that they were very approachable. So from a, a photographer's perspective, it was perfect. There wasn't really any... Um, technical difference between the cars in season one so no one was trying to hide anything and the drivers had so much time because there wasn't a huge media influence in the in the championship yet so drivers were very happy for me to just say hey if i just ask them sam can i do a photo jerome can i just get this photo seb can we do something like this they never said no and they always had the time and i think as the years have progressed the the size of the championship has meant that the the responsibilities that they that they have now as drivers on the marketing side has increased like a hundredfold. So um, I, I would say that the main difference now is that back then they were all helping each other to make the championship move forward. Now that it's become quite a permanent feature in the motorsport calendar, it's become a lot more close closed and uh, a lot more. Um, there's a lot more competition between everyone. As Formula E headed to Beijing for that first race, very few people had any idea how the field would stack out. 
Although it's fair to say that Renault Edams, if there was a title favourite, were probably most people's. Former Toro Rosso Formula One driver Sebastian Buemi was being partnered in that season and for the following seasons as well by Nicolas Prost, son of the four-time Formula One champion and now team advisor Alain Prost. With those two highly competent drivers, plus also the storied Dams team which had begun in the 80s as Rio Arnu Motorsport and was at that point well known for bringing titles. It seemed a fairly good bet that they would at least be fighting for the title that season. It's hard to know what the reason was, but I do think that a certain amount of it comes from just how professional Renault were and how well they prepared that team. Um, the fact that that car was so solid and obviously, you know, went on to be a championship winning car. I think just having that extra level of professionalism maybe set them out well enough that they knew how to put that car uh, in a pole winning position and then into a, you know, a leading a leading car. Everyone will agree with this because they know that I keep talking about it. But for me, my favorite um, my favorite car to photograph was the the Renault in season one. Um, it could be also because I had a bit of a soft spot for the team, obviously with Alain Prost being a uh, being the uh, team principal. I think it was team principal, and then with Nico driving uh, with Seb there. You know, these are big names, and you could tell from their operational side that even though all the cars were the same, they had put a lot of effort into making sure that their marketing and uh, all the other things to make the race team look big, it was all pretty much there. And um, I mean, it helped, it kind of helped that uh, they were the second, they were one of the contracts for that weekend. So it was my job to take pretty shots of that Renault. Um, when I do look at my back at my season one shots, it's it the Renault always sticks out to me. It just had a really really nice metallic blue and yellow color scheme, and those two colors just they always go. Some people love to come in at the start of a project. They love startups. They're early adopters, and anyone who was an early adopter of Formula E will have enjoyed the atmosphere of anything being possible. This extended to the car's liveries. Not your average Formula One style coat of paint. Oh no, there were some gorgeous chrome liveries and some fairly gaudy ones on show as well. I think Formula E had such a unique opportunity to reinvent what a livery was. You know, as it's a, it's a completely new sport. Uh, you know, we don't have to rely here on uh, throwback uh, cigarette liveries. This is an opportunity to do something completely different. And I think the some of the you know some of the teams really ran with that idea. But for me, Amla Naguri was like the standout livery and probably remains the best livery I think that Formula E has had just because of how vibrant it was. And even in a rainy day in Donington, it looked spectacular. But if you if you were walked past the garage in somewhere like Miami with all of the nose cones nose cones lined up and that superb reflective uh, livery, it was just gorgeous. Um, so it's, it was probably a, it was probably odd that it happened that a couple of cars went for the went for the chrome finish, but um, I absolutely adored it. On the original Formula E entry list was Drayson Racing. Considered to be quite a catch by the sport, it was run by Lord Drayson, who was an advocate of electric vehicles, but who decided to focus on technology behind the scenes of Formula E. And so he became a technical partner for a team run by Jarno Trulli, the former Renault and Toyota Formula One driver, who was stepping up to become a team boss for the first time. 
He was also driving for the Trulli Formula E team, alongside Michaela Ceruti in that first season. However, things didn't go according to plan for Trulli, perhaps a result of starting so late, but also perhaps a result of being a team on a relatively tight budget. It's it's difficult to say what the ex, what the you know what truly could have achieved because I think they were such a late they were such a late team to join the grid. From my memory, that spot was belongs to the the name of Drayson, and until I think very uh, quite late before preseason testing, if not even after that, was truly announced. And so that was really a re- a very difficult beginning for that team. Uh, as I said before, racing, some of the teams were there with raw carbon fibre and and really working through a lot of technical gremlins. And that's my memory of the Truly team in, the, in pre-season, especially, uh, is sort of Jarno Truly with his head in his hands. But, you know, another great driver with a fantastic pedigree who has has an opportunity to lead a team, but it just didn't quite work out for him, uh, unfortunately. I mean, I, it was fantastic to see Michaela there. He's an incredibly accomplished racing driver, really, really skilled. Um, and I think potentially wasn't quite on the level that uh, the Formula E, the other Formula E drivers were at, perhaps. She was one of two female drivers in season one. Uh, she also, uh, she was uh, joined by Catherine Legg. Catherine Legg was at Amna Naguri. Um, and, you know, the two of them had a, had a great season. And um, But yeah, Michaela didn't quite get the results that we might have hoped for because she is very exciting in an, in an open wheel, in an open wheel car. Um, but yeah, I do remember that truly going into that first race where, quite nervous having not really put as many laps down as you would have hoped. In 2014, 86 million people used Beijing Capital International Airport, the international airport which fed through to the Beijing National Stadium next to the circuit. You can imagine therefore that people were coming and going for all kinds of different reasons and the fact that Beijing was hosting a Formula E race was a relatively minor concern to most people in the sprawling Chinese capital. I think with Formula E at, at uh, Beijing, because it's a new motorsport, which is, I don't think it's really about the people that go to the race in the sense that the numbers are quite limited because the grandstands can't be too big uh, because of the limited space in the cities themselves. The real selling point of the championship is the, the online aspect, the, the TV aspect, the social media side of things, the YouTube channel, the Instagram, etc. And I think um, Formula E, if they had limited budget in their market, a limited marketing budget, it was always towards making it a global sport online and through media before they would try and do stuff for the the local people at that uh, at the racetrack itself. That's my perspective, anyway. But it was very <laughs> it was very strange because there was already a huge language barrier between obviously English and Chinese and this is six years ago when Google Translate on the phone wasn't really used that much and it um, yeah cultural and language barrier just meant that no one knew what was really going on and <laughs> even when you got to the race in, when you got to the Olympic Park in Beijing people still didn't know what was going on because the races are very short in Formula E there is this uh, you have the issue of you get the grid shots and you have to run to wherever you want to get to in that 10 minutes from where they clear the grid to when they start the race. Sometimes it's even, I think it's eight minutes. So in those eight minutes, you have to make sure that you get to somewhere where there's a good perspective, where you can get multiple angles very quickly, and then you'll have to make your way back to the pit lane um, to 
get the get the podium, etc. And uh, it's 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 very difficult. It's a very difficult thing to uh, to actually balance. Now again, with Shakedown, I went to that second chicane, and then uh, for FP1 for the first five minutes, I remember I went back to that chicane, and then for the re F rest of FP1, FP2, Quali, I did it in I covered it in random parts of the circuit. But I wanted to go back to that um, chicane for the start of the race, and it was a run across the main big square of the Olympic Park. And I remember I finished taking the grid shots of the cars, and then I ran as fast as I could through the crowds and everyone. It was just absolutely crazy. The funny thing was that my shorts, the button broke when I was running. <laughs> and uh, all I remember was that I was pulling my shorts up while running across got to the other side of the circuit and uh the cars came for the first lap and i remember one of the renos i think it was nico he got hit on the rear so he had a hanging down um his his rear wing was half off the car and i think bruno had already crashed out so it was already like oh that's not good because obviously the clients mahindra wants shots of bruno racing he's out on the first i think on the third corner or something so i was like oh this is this is no good and then it was just uh <clears throat> a matter of getting each each car at each corner and then with 10 minutes to go I ran back to the pit lane. Nico who Shiv mentioned was Nico Prost and Bruno was Bruno Senna the nephew of Ayrton Senna. With Formula E having almost no brand recognition in that first season and with them going into a first race completely unproven with the technology the organisers decided to really drum up the rivalry between Prost and Senna. Eager as ever to please, young Prost and young Senna didn't mind this particularly, or at least they didn't say they minded it. In spite of that incident that he referred to, the first few laps of the race were fairly sedate, or at least they weren't packed with incidents. It seemed as though nobody wanted to have the first big accident in Formula E history, and so much of the action took place after the first car changes, but we'll come on to that. It's funny because we, we look at Beijing for, for the second half of the race rather than the first half of the race, really. And uh, But it is a quite a sedate beginning of the beginning of the race, that's fair to say. And um, But I think so much about the first laps were just about getting the cars moving and letting everybody settle in. Obviously, they'd had practice sessions earlier in the day and qualifying, but they were still, you know, so, uh, you know, these cars were still so new to the team's um, and also from an engineering perspective, you know, they were really had a lot of work to do on the energy management side. Um, and these cars were really delicate in the early days. I mean, there were so many drivers who had to retire for simple contact uh, that ended up just, you know, ruining their suspension. Um, and so I think they were all being quite tentative, uh, quite tentative from the very beginning, which is why the likes of Nico did so well. I think he was so consistent through the day and then it obviously uh, put it on pole. And, uh, you know, and, and was, was given that space at the front to, to run away with it. The cross that Formula E had to bear was that its batteries wouldn't last a whole race. So the solution that they came up with was to have a car change in the middle of the race. During an allotted window, drivers would come in and would literally get out of a car, run across to another car and get in. It's part of Formula E that many people feel that they miss these days. Back in those early days, every team had their own strategy, and many of those strategies were just a little bit weird. 
whatever the team did, you didn't want to be a photographer around the pit lane when the cars came in and the drivers ran out because they would not let anyone get in their way to make sure that the car change was as quick as possible. Formula E's approach to car changes in those early seasons was a perfect example of making a bug into a feature, making something that had to be done into something that the crowds and the people viewing on TV and online could enjoy. It, it was it was crazy, and to be honest, I was I was petrified because when they were doing the uh, car changes in, during the practice sessions, well, not even in the practice sessions, in the off sessions. So when everyone's just doing car setup work, they would actually have specific car swap time slots, so then they would practice. And um, when you're in the garage at that moment, it, there's no there's no um, there's no pressure. They've got the stopwatch. They're like three, two, one, go and they do what they need to do they jump out they jump in but during the race it was quite scary and i didn't i think i shot one car swap for one of the drivers and i was like i can't i can't do this because you are always in someone's way and during the race they will not they will not just say excuse me i need to get past they will kick you and punch you and throw you out of the way regardless of whether you've got five ten thousand pound cameras on your shoulder they don't care so I remember that there was definitely that it was it was just um, they had to nail it and you didn't want to be a part of a problem. So when the car swaps happened, they looked amazing. Um, but I remember after the first one, I was like, I'm just going to get the cars leaving the pit, the pit, um, the pit box. It's, it's not worth uh, staying in there. It was just uh, too much of a high risk red zone, so to speak. For those who were maybe naysayers about the championship, it gave them extra firepower to say, well, look, you, you can't even get through a race with one car. You need to do this sort of slightly ludicrous car swap. Um, and even uh, rumours were that manufacturers had said they wouldn't join the championship until the cars could do the full distance because, you know, what kind of message does that send? But the car swaps for me were one of the most exciting times in the race. The the car swap was such an opportunity to completely shuffle the deck, and it really often did. You, there was absolutely no guarantee if you went into the pit lane first for the car swap that you would come out first. It was a crazy, crazy period of every race. And what was most fascinating from a driver and from a team perspective was just how many different creative ways there were for the teams to learn how to do this car swap because it had never been done before. So what is the most efficient way? Well, there's only, the only way of finding out is to try every possible scenario. And you had so many things happen that season and, you know, in different different uh, different ways of looking at it. And, and it, it was the same for seasons, seasons that followed. The teams were experimenting with timing systems. You had a minimal pit time at the time or minimum pit time at the time meaning that you were given the extra space to make sure that you definitely were strapped in. I think actually they became more unorthodox as the seasons went on, as they say, throwing steer steering wheels and the like. Um, it's been an amazing area to watch over the seasons. And I there's, there's kind of a documentary almost to make for super nerdy people like me on just how the different teams approached it, because the the ways in which they managed to get those pit times down is, is quite extraordinary. And, and when you're part of a team and you're watching pit, the car swap practice uh, before every race weekend, you're seeing how drivers are approaching it differently. And it's a, such an analog experience. It's it's quite literally a guy with a stopwatch shouting stop and go and uh, and your driver jumping in and out of cars all evening. And it's, it's a really physical thing to watch. It's not there's a sort of a disconnect if you watch a Formula One pit stop, which is, you know, an obviously mind blowingly fast thing to watch. But it is it's not as uh, physical as when you actually watch someone <laughs> 
jumping from one car to the other. It's uh, it's incredible. But uh, yeah, Formula E testing was was amazing because you were just seeing these guys try this stuff for the first time. So it was a completely, you know, it was night and day from where it was at the end of the season. Um, but it was really exciting. And obviously there were practice races during preseason testing as well, uh, which I wasn't, uh, I didn't see myself. Unfortunately, they weren't run for, for media. Um, but all of those things were tested at the time. And they even had the marquees set up behind the garages, I believe, at Donington. So you had to drive through your garage to your marquee at the back. It was a very odd system, but it's uh, it's just been amazing to see how it's developed over the first, I suppose, four seasons. For the moment that the cars resumed after the uh, resumed racing after the car swaps, it was pretty clear that Nico was going to be under pressure, and watching him get reined in slowly was such an exciting thing. I think for all for all of us race fans who were watching the championship and really wanted it to go well. This was a moment where something very special was going to happen. You know, I think iconic racing overtakes are happen on the last lap. You know, it's all about watching a driver just slowly rein in the driver in front. And everybody knew the name Prost, of course, but everyone knew the name Nick Heidfeld. And, you know, everyone knew Nick's history in Formula One as well and, and how close he'd come so many times. Indeed, the final laps of the race were a battle between Nico Prost in the Renault Edams and Nick Heifelt in the Venturi. Heifelt's team were based in Monaco and they were new to Formula E but not to fans of sports car racing where the company under previous ownership had entered a beautiful looking sports car in the 90s. On Venturi's entry into Formula E though, they were promoting a series of electric vehicles. They also had investment from Leonardo DiCaprio, the film star a long-term activist against climate change and also a believer in the power of electric vehicles. Slowly but surely it looked like Heidfeld had the upper hand. He was reeling in post by a considerable rate every lap, right up until the final lap, when they were nose to tail. It looked as though something might happen as well. And then, something did. On the run-up to the tight final corner, Heidfeld moved to the inside. Post darted in Heidfeld's direction to block him. The commentary of the time, commentator Jack Nichols shouting, that's an accident, has become iconic. And although Nichols now claims that that's one of his worst pieces of commentary ever, there are many people who would argue against that. Certainly the incident, which thankfully led to both drivers emerging unhurt, even though Heidfeld's car went upside down after crashing into a fence. For a lot of people, it was the first iconic image that Formula E had produced. There was, it was, everything felt right to build up to this incredibly exciting moment. And it was, you couldn't have written it. It was so perfect how close he got heading into those final corners. And it was all hanging on, on this one overtake. The way that it worked out, that, crash in in many ways was the making the championship in a, in a media perspective it was that photographic moment um something extraordinary happening and um luckily completely everybody is completely fine but i i think in many ways without that crash perhaps not many people not as many people would have been aware of the of that race it was you know very much front page news and um you know, it, it is an incredible time that was, you know, that clip has been reused on uh, on uh, B-roll for formerly footage for years since. You know, it's always been shown. And um, it was just 
a an incredible ending to a race really i don't think I, we're lucky that we haven't seen a crash like that in formula e since we've seen some pretty crazy crashes um but nothing like that with a barrel roll into the fences um and thank god nick was okay um i was lucky to to work with nick the following season and he's a, just a fantastic driver i've always been a fan of his and he is a wonderful person to work with and i'm i'm incredibly grateful that he was all right um but what a way to end the very first race and really the pilot of this brand new championship. Not for the final time in his Formula E career, it was Lucas Degrassi who was smart enough to profit. Just behind him was the Andretti car of Franck Montagny, with Daniel Abt third. I wasn't really at the last corner, but because um, I, I was down the pit lane entry, um, the last corner, unfortunately, was very difficult. You couldn't get there. As a photographer, there was no access point to get from the... If I wanted to get the actual accident happening, I would have had to station myself at the last corner. But the problem with that was then there would be no way to get back to uh, the pit lane side until the race is over and everything's finished. So, um, And funny enough, I even remember when I walked the track, the track walk, and I was with Ross, and I said to him that, this last corner is really tight. And I said, if no one tries a lunge on the final corner, I'll be very, very surprised. And I, to this day, he still says to me, I remember you telling me that like the day before it happened. And um, I just knew I had to be in the pit lane for the end of the race. And I wasn't really, um, when I when I saw with a lap or two to go, I thought, you know what, Nico's got this, 100%. He's, Nick hasn't got, he hasn't saved enough energy to, push it that hard to make up that gap but that final lap was just he was every sector was just chunks of time and now it was just he's in the way of of um of nick it's not that nick is not fast enough it's just he's in the way um when i so when they were coming around the final half of the 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 lap because from my perspective, I wasn't going to see it on the pit lane because they would have to finish the lap, so they would pass me anyway. So I was going to go for the checkered flag shot because um, I was right there. I went to that spot, and from there I could see the large TV, and then uh, the crowd were going loud, just getting louder and louder and louder, and then I saw um, uh, I was ready for the checkered flag shot, but I had to get my camera ready through the fence, so I couldn't look at the TV anymore. And then the crowd just erupted. And I thought, oh, wow, what have they seen? Because no one's crossed the line yet. It's not like the victory has happened. And I turn around, <laughs> turn around and on the video feed, I just see an upside down car. And I didn't know who it was, what was going on. And the final corner so far away that you can't even see what happened because it happened so quickly. So as I was looking at the screen, unfortunately, Lucas won and he passed me. And I was like, you forgot to get the winning driver shot with the checkered flag, because that would have been really nice. That's what I wanted to get. So out of looking at the screen, I, I missed Lucas. Um, then I ran back to get the team um, the team reactions. But as I ran back, I, I saw at the top of the pit lane entry, I saw two drivers coming down. I'd just seen an upside down car on the track. That was the video feed that I saw. Lucas passed me, but I thought I missed Nico and Nick. And people were just going crazy and no one knew what was going on. And you just see two figures just walking towards me. And I just thought, so it was the leaders and it was the final corner. And then I just composed the shot and just uh, took a succession of shots. And 
the funny part was that um, when I look at, back at it now, I thought that Nick had made a mistake and Nico had done, had was just an innocent party because the body language was Nick was talking to Nico and trying to put his arm around him and say to him or apologize or whatever. But they, Nico was the one that was shoving Nick away and saying, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> it's just amazing to think that because now when you look back at the feed, I mean, you know, I'm no, I'm no racing driver, but Nico closed the door way too quick, way too late. And it was just an accident. Inevitably, it was going to happen. Um, and yeah, it was just something to get the succession of shots. And then they look straight at Nico, looked straight at the camera for one of the shots, which I made black and white because that was my favorite out of the, out of the shot list. But I got at least 30 shots of them walking towards me and you just get all the different body languages. And then they walk to their garages and then oh, I was just in shock. I was like, I couldn't believe it. So suddenly I had no work. <laughs> for some people, it was the pilot episode. For others, it was the race that began a legend. Whatever you think of the first Formula E race in Beijing in 2014, it definitely started something. To explain what he feels makes Formula E special, let's hear one more time from the third place finisher that day in Beijing, Daniel Abt. I just feel like if I look at other racing series, you know, they have not really understood what, what racing in the, uh, at this stage is about. It's not just about racing and technology anymore because the technology that we race is most of the time not relevant to, to develop broadcasts and stuff. It's about, it's about marketing, it's about creating excitement for fans, it's about the, sh it's about the show. In the end what we do is a show, it's not, it's not the engineer's hobby, it's, it's really, it's our main goal has to be to, to get people excited for what we do. And I feel like so many series just don't don't get it. They keep on doing what they always do. Um, you see hardly any spectators. You know, I've, I've been at WEC races that were super, like for me, they were super boring. Of course you drive and it's cool, but for me that's not, if I feel like I'm driving and no one cares, like, is that really what I want to do? Is that is that really, does that make any sense actually then? And, and uh, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's not just driving, it's the whole package. And with Formula E, we travel to amazing places. Um, it's a cool, fresh attitude. It's a good atmosphere in the paddock. It's nice drivers, nice teams. It's always something going on. It's it's a fresh attitude in terms of how do we broadcast, how do we engage with social media, how do we all do all these things. And I don't see that anywhere else. And I just feel like I don't know. I feel like I'm I'm bored with the other stuff. Of course, the, the racing is nice, but the racing is one hour a day. That's not it. It's 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 you know what do you do the other time that you had the racetrack? If you just sit in your truck doing nothing, then that's not really kicking me. E-Stories Urban Regen was narrated, written and produced by me, Stuart Garlic. You can catch up on other content from me on Motion E, that is motione.org, and you can follow me on social media on motione.org. Thanks once again to Naomi Panter, Shiv Gohill and Daniel Abt. <laughs>